Morning, Bethel. All right, our scripture reading for this morning, it is John chapter 14, verses 1 to 14. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 901. So that's John chapter 14, verses 1 to 14, page 901 in the Pew Bible. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. John 14, 1 to 14. This is the word of the Lord. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Morning, Bethel. Good to see you all and be together to worship our great God together this morning. Um, So we're finishing this series called Dwelling. This morning we've looked at Psalm 90 and 91, and um, we're going to finish this morning by looking at Psalm 92. Hopefully you'll see why we read John 14 as the scripture reading. Um, There's a lot of parallels. I actually won't take much time to to connect those dots. But we're going to be looking at Psalm 92. So if you want to turn in your Bible to Psalm 92, um, we're going to be walking through it here in just a minute. So you can find that on page 498 if you're using the the Bible in the pew rack. All right. So we've been going through this series called Dwelling because the, the theme of God dwelling with his people and us dwelling with him as our God just runs the whole way through the Bible from the beginning when everything was good, 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 very good, and God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in paradise. And at the end of the story, we again dwell with God um, perfectly, new heavens, new earth. There's a lot of action in between. (laughs) The tabernacle was all about God dwelling with his people. The temple was all about God dwelling with his people. And then Jesus, the true temple, was all about God dwelling with his people because stuff got in the way. Our sin got in the way of us dwelling with God. And so God had to do things to deal with that. 
So again, the theme runs all the way through, but it certainly is focused here in these three psalms. So um, we're going to actually read it and kind of study it, walk through it together. We're not going to read it um, all in one shot here at the beginning. But before we dive in, I want you to think with me here. I I read an article recently by, um, I think he passed away several years ago, but a a pastor named Johann Tangelder. Um, He wrote a little article called Aging in Hope. So think about this with me as we dive into Psalm 92. Does it not strike you that we all want to live longer, but none of us want to grow old? How do we cope with aging, he asks. It seems the fear of aging has contributed to a denial of reality. If we don't talk about it, maybe it won't happen to us. The world's denial, death denial, is evident too in how it is now a common goal among the aged to stay young, whereas in the past, becoming an adult was the ideal. Today, the older generation wants to look as young as possible. Wherever we look, there are ads for anti-aging creams, yoga routines, nutritional programs, and medical interventions. Growing old is seen not so much as part of the human condition, but rather as a solvable medical and scientific problem. Hence, doctors and scientists search for a solution to the problem of old age. He then goes on to speak of Dr. Viktor Frankl, who suffered unspeakable horror in Nazi concentration camps. And he said, this Dr. Frankel said, there's no reason to pity old people. And he added this remarkable statement. Instead, young people should envy them. Why? Because seniors have something young people don't possess. Frankel says that seniors have realities in the past. The potentialities they have actualized, the values they have realized, and nothing and nobody can ever remove those assets from their past. Okay, they can also have a lot of painful things in the past too as well, right? Of course. But the point is, they've experienced the faithfulness of God, the grace of God, and no one and no thing can take that away. So, do you want a perspective like that? (laughs) We're all going to get old. Some of us are there. I'm not trying to slam anybody, okay? It's just reality, right? We're all going to be there. Some of us are closer to it or there already, but don't you want a perspective like this? Like, how beautiful would it be that if the church was filled with older folks that younger people envied because of how they aged? That's going to take some supernatural grace. So Psalm 92 can help because of what it points us to. So, first point, what the Sabbath is for, verses 1 to 5. So you can, there's an outline in your bulletin. You can also see the points up on the the slides here. So, verses 1 to 5 first. Psalmist begins and says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord. I'm going to say this quickly because I know there are Visitors, um, I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. Whenever you see all four caps, L-O-R-D, that is translating the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh. So the reason why it's translated in most translations as Lord is because 
um, the Jews viewed the name of God as too holy to speak. And so Lord was substituted for Yahweh. Okay? Well, appreciate the reverence, but it actually is misleading because Lord is a title. Yahweh is a name. Lord is what he is. Yahweh is who he is. And this God, our God, wants us to know his name. He wants us to call him by name. How amazing is that? That the God who spun the stars with a word is that awesome. He wants us to know him personally and intimately, and he reveals himself. He gives us his name, not just the title. Okay? So I'm going to say Yahweh every time we hit capital L-O-R-D, okay? So now you know why. There we go. All right. So it is good to give thanks to Yahweh, to sing praises. And by the way, Yahweh, what in the world does that mean? When Moses encounters the burning bush, I am who I am, the self-existent one. His name speaks of his self-existence. He just is. We're all dependent We're all contingent. He has life in himself. He's not dependent on anyone or anything. Okay? So he's the self-existent one. All right. Um, It is good to give thanks to Yahweh, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night to the music of the lute and the harp and the lyre or maybe the drums and the djembe, guitar, you know, Yes, thank you. Okay. So, it is good to do this. Does that mean it's good in the sense of it's fitting? Or it's good in the sense that it's pleasant? I think the psalmist actually would say yes. (laughs) Both. In fact, in Psalm 147, that's exactly how it gets unpacked. It's good, it's fitting and pleasant. That's how he speaks of praise to Yahweh. Okay? So here's the thing. Isn't that helpful? Because sometimes it doesn't seem so pleasant, but it can be fitting. And sometimes even in the reorientation process and praising God, it becomes sweet to your soul and pleasant, right? You ever had that experience? So even if it isn't pleasant to you at the moment, we can praise the Lord, and that's right. It's good. It's fitting. But when we taste and see how good our God is. It is most certainly pleasant to give thanks. I hope that was your experience this morning. The songs are so fitting for this series on dwelling and for our passage this morning. So um, it's encouraging to sing these truths, to declare the steadfast love and faithfulness of our God. So that's what happened to the psalmist. And so looks where he goes. It's good for him to praise our God. So he goes on in verses 4 and 5. Why is it good to give thanks? Why is it good to sing praises, declare steadfast love and faithfulness? Because, verses 4 and 5, you, O Yahweh, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Yahweh. Your thoughts are very deep. So he's impressed with the works of God. His works in creation and in providence and redemption. There is so much glory all around us. Do you see it? Have you seen it? Do you delight in it? When we do, it fills us with thanksgiving to God and praise. 
We praise his mighty, creative, merciful, beautiful, loving, kind, patient, long-suffering, faithful name. So listen to the psalm. Take it to heart. It is good, brothers and sisters, to give thanks to Yahweh, to sing praises to his name, to declare his steadfast love in the morning and his faithfulness by night, which would be at least a good place to start, morning and night, but that kind of embraces the totality of the day, right? So all the time, all the time rejoice in the Lord always. So use your voice, use your instruments, use your playlist to help you do this, okay? It is good. It's certainly good when your heart is overflowing with thanks and praise to give thanks. It's also good when your heart is cold and when the iceberg of indifference need to be, needs to be broken up and melted. Anybody ever there? I am. So this is true. These verses are true, 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2, because it's not good. It's not fitting to be bored with or disinterested in or to be like, whatever, toward the works of the Lord. It's not good. It's not fitting to not give thanks for our food, for God's kindness and grace toward us in a million ways that we benefit from every single day. It's also not good to be hyper-focused on our works and just assume his or give God's works token attention. No, it's really good to focus on God and his works and praise him. So did you notice that the first point is titled, What is the Sabbath for? So what, are we going to talk about that? Look at the title of the psalm, Psalm 92, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. So the titles in our Bible are original, okay, unlike the chapters and verses, okay? So the chapters came in like around 1200 A.D. The verses came in around 1550 A.D., but the titles, they were in there originally, okay? So they're significant. This is a song for the Sabbath. So why is this psalm so fitting or appropriate for the Sabbath? Look at verses 4 and 5 again. Again, did we look at them yet? We did. Thank you. Okay, Rob is shaking his head. Okay, so for you, O Yahweh, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Yahweh? So what was the original Sabbath all about? Rest. Rest, yeah. So on the seventh day, God rested from all his work, his labor. So he said in action on the seventh day what he had said in words several times in the days of creation when he said, good, good, very good. The provision was complete. So God's work was good. It was very good. And the Sabbath was a time for God to step back and say, it's complete. On our end, as human beings, the Sabbath is a time for us to focus on the work of God, the provision of God, so that we know that we can trust him, reminding ourselves like a weekly reminder that we can trust him. So the rest of the week, you know, tends to be where we focus more on, on our work. But the Sabbath was a day of rest so that we could rest from our work and focus on God's work. 
So that should be the orientation every day, but the Sabbath in a special way. So the Sabbath is time to contemplate the works of God. His works are great, and they should make us happy. (laughs) So it's good to give thanks and praise and speak these truths. So Sabbath is not a time to work. It's not a time to focus on our works. It's a time to focus on God's work, to contemplate his works, to remember, to admire, to celebrate his work, and to trust in his finished works, his provisions, his promises. Okay, so when we come to church, we need to kind of set aside all that we need to do. We need to set aside all we've failed to do. We need to set aside all we've done that we regret where we failed. And what we do, we come in and we focus on God's works, on his steadfast love and faithfulness. And we focus on the ultimate work that he did when on the cross Jesus said, it is finished. And he totally did the work of redemption for us. So then when we focus on all that he's done for us, now we're ready to deal with all of the stuff that we've done. The stuff we regret doing, where we failed to glorify God, failed to love others, all the things we should have done and we didn't do, what do we do? We take that to Jesus because he died for us. He takes that burden from us. He paid the debt of our sin for us. He paid it all. It's finished. And then all that we need to do, again, we focus so often on our work, we're strengthened, we're, our souls are at rest in Christ, and now we can go do all of our to-dos in the strength that he supplies. So do you see how focusing on God's work enables us to do our work in his strength? So we focus enough on our problems and, and troubles and failures and whatever. I mean, what good does it do us in the long run, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I focus a lot on, on what I'm not doing, all I'm not getting to, all I'm failing to do. I feel guilty about it. I feel bad about it. I feel like a failure. Why can't I get more done? Why can't I do this or do that better? What's wrong with me? What am I doing wrong? Anybody ever feel that way? Okay. I want, I need to be a better husband and father and neighbor and pastor and citizen and friend and son and brother. Some of that's not bad, okay? There's real concern to love as many people as possible. I don't want to drop balls because, you know, that's going to mean that people aren't going to be cared for the way they should. And, you know, you don't want to disappoint people. Again, there can be good things in there, but also some not so good things, like my pride because I look bad if I drop balls or don't get everything done. I want everybody to be happy with me. So there's a lot of, a lot of things that are not good about focusing, being hyper-focused on what we do, our works, or what we fail to do. Well, the Sabbath, the Sabbath originally was a weekly opportunity a reminder to focus more on the works of God than on our own work, our own works. It was like a training ground, like a weekly training ground and reorientation for the rest of the week so that you would trust God and focus on Him 
as the great worker in the universe and the great worker in our lives, right? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So what we do on Sunday now on this side of the cross is not the Sabbath. It's not one-to-one with the Sabbath, okay? The ultimate fulfillment of the Sabbath is found in Jesus. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So that's the perfect provision of the Father, and we can find rest for our souls in Jesus 24-7. But we do honor God's command not to neglect to meet together, encouraging one another, right? We do it on the Lord's Day, commemoration of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, okay? Whose work is everything to us. It's finished. That changes everything. We don't have to strive to climb some ladder to get into God's good graces. We can't. He came down. We don't have to climb up to him to dwell with him. I've got to be good enough. I've got to work hard enough. No, he came down to dwell with us so that we could dwell with him. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, living the life that we failed to live, dying the death that we deserve to die in our place, substitutionary atonement, So we trust in Jesus. If you're not, if you don't have a Savior, if you're not in Christ, if if you haven't trusted in him, then you're on your own merits before God, and you're in trouble. So run to Jesus. He takes all of your debt, and he gives you his righteousness. Trust in him, and you know rest of soul, and you can dwell with God because you're reconciled to God. Okay, so it is finished changes everything, and we need to remember that. We need to sing it like we did this morning. We need to pray it. We need to hear it preached. We need to talk about it with each other. That's why we talk afterwards (laughs) and before. That's why we do community groups. We need to encourage each other with this. We need to remind, reorient each other, help each other stay focused on God's works, his steadfast love and faithfulness. So when we meet as a church, it's not one-to-one like the Sabbath, but it's a wise weekly rhythm of life where we give special focus to the work and works of God. So how often do you actually focus on the works of God? I mean, there is something so much better. We all need to hear this, I think, or most of us. There's something so much better, more pleasant, more fitting than staring at a screen every night or endlessly scrolling through social media, let's let's get outside and contemplate the works of God. Let's sit in our backyard or go for a long walk in a park and ponder the works of the Lord. When we open our Bibles, we open our Bibles each day so that we can see God, see his works, his faithfulness, contemplate that so that thanksgiving and reorientation and praise just wells up. So, Psalm 1 and 2 and 3 start to happen as we see his works and they make us glad. We start to give thanks and sing praise and declare his faithfulness. We'll have something to say. We can tell what we've seen to our kids or to our neighbors or to our coworkers or our family members. And we end up encouraging people who already believe, but we may also be used by God to point someone who doesn't believe yet, to see God's greatness. Because apart from the grace of God, look at where 
we are as human beings apart from God. Point number two, dullness and doom, verses six to seven. The stupid man, that, you know, we kind of chuckle. This is not the Bible being flippant or God being flippant. Stupid in the sense of unspiritual and dull, okay? The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. So the psalmist does not mean that these are people who are intellectually limited. There can be geniuses who are, in the Bible's words, fools. I don't suggest you go and tell them that, okay? But here's the point. It's sad. Isn't it sad when, has anybody ever watched Planet Earth, BBC, or something like that? You see these incredible, this incredible footage of this incredible world with just glory all over the place. And the explanation, ultimately, that so many of the folks that produced that is that this all came about as a result of random chance and mutations. That's insane. To call something beautiful and to say it's random, pointless, we live in an impersonal universe, that's crazy. If you believe in beauty, if if some friend of yours is an atheist and believes in beauty, that ought to be reason for them to doubt their doubts. Because there is design, amazing design in this universe because of the works of God. So, without the Spirit of God opening our eyes to see reality, we would all be here. We would be blind to the works of God, the glory of God in creation and in history, His providential works. And then, most sadly, we'd be blind to redemption, what He's done through Christ. So, the psalmist says here, these people are dull to God. And sadly, they're dull to the fact that they're doomed to destruction. They may seem to flourish, but their flourishing is like grass in the hot Middle Eastern sun. I mean, it can sprout up quickly, but be burned up even more quickly. So they will perish like grass quickly burned up. But Yahweh, he reigns forever. Point number three, verse eight. In the structure of the psalm here, this is actually the center point. It's the highlight. Look at verse eight. But you, O Yahweh, are on high forever. So there are all kinds of things that get us down, freak us out, push our anxiety buttons, lead us to feel like our lives or this world is just like spinning out of control. But it's not true. Yahweh is on high forever. God is the self-existent one. I am who I am. Everyone, everything, even those of whom we can be most afraid, they're all sustained by Yahweh. He is on high forever. They are not. They will not be forever. So God reigns. His kingdom is coming unstoppably. History is not just endlessly circular. It's going somewhere. And that somewhere is the day when the sovereign judge will separate the righteous from the wicked, the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, and the wicked will be doomed to destruction forever in hell. The righteous, though, will be delivered to eternal pleasure at God's right hand forevermore. Evil simply will not last forever. Look at verses 9 to 11. Evil won't last. For behold, your enemies, O Yahweh, behold, your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered, but you have exalted my horn. That's a symbol of strength. Like that of the wild ox, you have poured over me fresh oil. 
My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. So the righteous will ultimately be vindicated and exalted, and the wicked will perish and be shamed. Vindication will come. So often we struggle with how long it takes. Often we wonder why God doesn't bring it sooner. But make no mistake, it will come. And every time that you have seen it come in your life or in history, it's a foreshadowing, it's a signpost of the future. So think about biblical history, Mordecai and Haman, if you know the story in Esther. That was God's justice breaking in. David and Goliath, same thing. So when kingdom of God justice breaks into this world, when his kingdom comes, we see it, we rejoice, we learn the enemies are going to fall, his people are going to be vindicated because he reigns forever. God wins. So listen to Van Gemeren, William Van Gemeren, the commentator on, uh, on, on the book of Psalms here. God's justice in life is one aspect of the hope of the godly. The psalmist confesses his joy in knowing and in having witnessed God's justice by the downfall of the wicked. Another aspect of hope is the ultimate and complete cessation of evil. Evil and God cannot coexist forever. Even in the affirmation of God's past acts lies hope for a greater future. In other words, because he's dealt with it in the past, as his kingdom breaks in, he's going to ultimately and finally deal with it in the future. Evil is temporary, righteousness is eternal, and as such... Point number five, the righteous will flourish forever. Verses 12 to 15. So again, this dwelling series, God dwelling with us, his people, doing all that it took so that we could dwell with him. Psalm 90 says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Psalm 91 said, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And now here in Psalm 92 Look at verses 12 to 15. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of Yahweh. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that Yahweh is upright he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So <clears throat> why does a tree flourish and bear fruit? Because of where it's planted. Because of the environment in which it dwells. What better place to be planted than in the house of God, in the courts of our God? We are transplanted there, right? The only way you get into this house, God's house, the only way you get into his family is by grace, the grace that adopts us into his family. The only way we get into his courts, he's holy, we're unholy. How can we dwell with him? The atoning blood of Christ that covers us so that we can draw near with confidence. So the New Testament way of expressing this transplant idea is found in Colossians 1. Listen to this. Paul gives thanks to the Father, and he says, Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness 
and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we are in Christ. He's the vine, we're the branches. We've been grafted in. Now we have life coursing through our spiritual veins, new life, spiritual life, so that we can bear fruit. It's reminiscent of Psalm 1, isn't it, these verses? Psalm 92, 12 to 15, the wicked are like chaff. The righteous who delight in the word of God and meditate on it day and night are like trees planted by streams of water. They yield fruit in season. Their leaf doesn't wither. In all that they do, they flourish. They prosper. So here in Psalm 92, the righteous are likened to date palms or cedars of Lebanon, trees that were really highly prized. They were strong. They were useful. They, were long, they had a long life, which is set in contrast to the wicked, right? They're like grass. Or in Psalm 1, the wicked are like chaff. The wind blows away. So the main reason here for flourishing is closeness to Yahweh, dwelling with him, living in his house. And this flourishing is not just for those who are young and vigorous. It's true even to old age. I love this quote by um, Plummer on this psalm. It would be sad indeed if God forsook his aged servants and left them to wither in spirit as they fail in bodily vigor. Does he do that? Does he forsake you in old age? No. Even to old age, they still bear fruit. So Josh actually read 2 Corinthians 5 about we have this home in the heavens, eternal in the heavens. Do you know what the verses just before that say? So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Alec Motier says, the world's ambition is to stay young. The Bible's ambition is to grow old fruitfully. It doesn't have to be the problem of old age. How about the ambition to age well in grace and be fruitful all the way and finish well? So let me give you a few examples. Is Gladys here? There's a lot of people not here. She's away. Well, it's probably better for her because she would be embarrassed. Um, So Gladys, as most of you know, fell not long ago. She broke her elbow. She tore the skin off her hand. She messed up her knee, bumped her head. Um, uh, Jay and Joanne are here with us. Great to have you guys here. Um, Miss and love you guys. Your mom is, what, 85? Nine. Okay, so Gladys is 89, if you don't know Gladys. So first time I went to visit her in a hospital room, after her fall, Gladys loves the Word of God. She's been a Gideon for a long time, and or anyway, really treasures the Word of God. So I, I imagine she'd probably been meditating on Scripture. So one of the first questions I asked her when I came in the room is, what Scripture's been an encouragement to you? And she, she kind of smiled and giggled, you know that, like, Gladys giggle. And um, she said, well, actually, 
give thanks in all circumstances. And she went on to say, I'm alive, I'm saved, what more do you need than that? Like that was, those were some of the initial thoughts after this fall and, you know, pain and whatever. So I'm pretty sure that I was more encouraged by that visit than she was because she was living Psalm 92, 12 to 15. Most of you don't know Janice Jacoby. So she used to attend Bethel faithfully with her family for a long time. She's never attended Bethel in the nine years I've been here, so I can't, I'm not actually sure the last time she was here. She's a widow. She's a shut-in. She has been through a lot personally. Her daughter who cares for her has also been through a lot. She is effusive with the joy of the Lord. I mean, this lady is so alive and vital. I just, like, smile and start laughing when I, when I call her and talk to her. I, when I, I've gone to visit her. It, it's amazing. She's flourishing, and she's pretty much confined to this little room. I mean, she gets out now and then. But the point is, she is full of sap and green. She loves to declare that, that God is her rock. One more example. So Ray Ortland Jr. is a pastor, author that I love to read and listen to. And he found in his father's drawer, shortly after his father's death, a letter that his father had written to the family. So here's what he writes. After my dad's death in 2007, I found in his desk this letter he had written to the family several years before. Here is one way a saintly man can care for his family so that it lasts forever. Um, so this would be a way in which his dad was a living illustration of verses 12 to 15. It's a portion of the letter. Dear family, the time has come for my departure. It's strange to write this when I'm feeling well and vigorous, but unless Christ returns first, that departure time will come, and when you read this, it will have happened. I've had a great journey with Jesus Christ. Now life on earth is over, and I go to meet the Lord face to face. I trust in him as my sure Savior and rest in his grace at this momentous time of my death. I do not fear death. I don't like the pain, blood, and guts of it all, he puts in parentheses. Actually, I've been anticipating this new adventure. And at the time you read this, I will be with Christ in heaven. So it's happened. And I'm now in God's presence, probably shocked at all I'm seeing for the first time. I'm sorry for my sin and failures, which have been many, but I know Christ has forgiven them. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. My dear Anne has been my most treasured friend. If she is still living as you read this, I know you will treat her well. When she goes to heaven, God will give her blue ribbons and gold medals. What a great woman and wife. She has loved and stood loyally by me all our life together. Listen. And our last years have been our best. Psalm 92. Each of you children and spouses have been the joy of my life, as have been the grandchildren. I urge you to remain true to your Savior. Love each other deeply in your marriages. Keep your family ties strong. Lay up treasure in heaven because the stuff of earth is empty. Bank accounts, houses, and furniture mean nothing to me now. Actually, they never did. Beware of sin and confess it as soon as you discover it in your life and let the Spirit's gift of joy color all your life. 
as you mature, remain a happy person in Christ. Get even sweeter as you get older. Sour old people are a pain. Amen? Okay. In my death, be sure God is glorified. Jesus glorified the Father most in his death. So at my memorial service, glorify God. Have a holy party. I was saying to Anne, that's his wife, recently that this world has become less attractive lately. And I feel a bit out of place. So it's good to go home now. And then he says, I'd like my burial made simple, bury my remains in a simple container to wait for the resurrection of my new glorified body. I love you all and each one. I'll see you sooner than you think, Dad. So to all you older saints, you may slow down. Don't ever retire from ministry. The form may change, but don't ever think that you're past your usefulness. If you're dwelling with the Lord, you've got sap and green and flourishing and fruit to give. You've got so much to offer. You've lived long enough to see through the faux flourishing of the wicked. Did you catch that? Back up in verse 7, there is a certain flourishing. Like, ooh, Richard Branson, you know? Ooh, Elon Musk. Ooh, Jeff Bezos. Ooh. Okay, I, hopefully they at some point come to trust in Jesus because otherwise, grass. It's all fool's gold. It's all faux flourishing. The only real flourishing comes in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the Lord, dwelling with God. So, those of you that have lived long enough, yeah, Ecclesiastes is true. <laughs> vanity, vanity. So, help us see reality. Show us how the righteous flourish and grow like a cedar, like a palm tree, flourishing because they're dwelling with the Lord. All right, last point. This quote that we've used each week in this series, you have a permanent address, make sure you're living there. Um, I want to just make sure this, is, this makes sense and is clear, okay? So... What do we mean by this? We mean you have a permanent address. You're in Christ. You have a home. You're not a cosmic orphan. Okay? If you're in Christ, you belong with the God of the universe. You're reconciled to him, and you have a future home that no one and nothing can take from you. That is incredibly stabilizing, right, in such a crazy world. In this world, you have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. You've got a place with me. You've got a home with me. So think about home and how you relate to it, most of you. You go home every day, don't you? Like good day, bad day, you go home. It's where you live. It's where you belong. It's where you can rest and recover from work. It's where you get ready for your work. Do, do you treat God like that? Do you relate to God like that? 
when a husband doesn't come home, it's not a good sign. Infidelity. Are we going home, like, regularly because God has our heart? So David Murray writes this in a book called Reset. The gradual loss of contact with God through regularly rushed or missed daily devotions or the life lived independently of God results in a growing distance between us and God and a growing proximity to temptation and sin. Isn't that helpful? So the point is not check off the boxes on your Bible reading program, you know. The point is if you drift from God, you are getting closer in proximity to false sources of refuge. So stay home, stay close. Or commenting on Psalm 91, this plumber guy writes, the connection of good men with the Lord is not transient and temporary, but settled and permanent. God is their habitation so that genuine believers go to him continually. The nature of true faith is to make use of God in all conditions, in peace and war and prosperity and adversity. Not fair weather faith, not foxhole faith, real faith. What it looks like when we don't live this way, a little testimony from someone in the world that didn't know, sadly, God as his home, his dwelling place. A fascinating interview I heard about with Chester Bennington, former lead singer of Lincoln Park. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that band, okay? So listen to this interview. It's a radio interview that he did. When I'm inside myself, when I'm in my own head, this place right here, this skull between my ears, that is a bad neighborhood. And I shouldn't be in there alone. I can't be in there by myself. It's insane. It's crazy in here. It's a bad place for me to be by myself. When I'm in there, I don't say nice things to myself. So even those of us who have God as our home might relate to this. If I'm not actively getting out of myself, he said, and being with other people, being a dad, being a husband, being a bandmate, being a friend, helping someone out, if I'm out of myself, I'm great. If I'm inside all the time, I'm horrible, I'm a mess, I don't like my mind right now, stacking up problems that are so unnecessary. That's where that song, he was commenting on a song he was being asked about. That's where that song came from for me. Realizing I drive myself nuts, actually thinking that all these are real problems, all the stuff that's going on in here, I'm doing this to myself. When you can step back and look at something, you're actually elevating yourself consciously. You're enlightened at that point. This is that moment of enlightenment where you go, you know, I can do something about this. And by doing it, I can move forward and get unstuck. Well, he didn't know where to go, but that's kind of pointing the way, right? is to get out of yourself and run to the refuge. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they're safe. So dwelling with God means that you run from the bad neighborhood and run home to God. Get out of that bad neighborhood. Actively dwelling with God, running to your refuge. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. So key quote, you have a permanent address, make sure you're living there. Let me say that same thing in other ways 
to maybe help it be clear, to make sure it's clear. You've been grafted into the vine. Make sure you're abiding in Christ. You've been adopted into the family. Make sure you're not living like an orphan. You've been declared righteous by the judge of all the earth through Christ. Make sure you're not living under condemnation. Your debt has been paid by Jesus. Make sure you're not trying to do penance for your sin. See, you're trying to pay. You've been made rich through Christ's poverty, rich in mercy. Make sure you're not thinking God has been stingy. You began by grace through faith in the power of the Spirit. Make sure you're not trying to be perfected by the flesh. Make sure you're continuing on in the same way. Does that make sense? You have a permanent address, make sure you're living there. Okay, we're going to do some community discussion here. So let me just close with this quote by a friend of mine, Drew Hunter. Just wrote a book, and I'm reading it. It's really good. It's on friendship. And here's what he said. God's encouragement comes to us through the words of Scripture, and those words often come to us through friends. When we're discouraged, we need an outside word. And we need to hear it in the familiar voice of a friend. I remember when my friend Ryan called me when he was discouraged, he said the reason he called was for me to remind him of the gospel. He knew it well, but he also knew he needed it to come to him from the outside. He needed to hear again what he already knew. So if you're in Christ, you're already home. But don't we need a lot of help? Don't we need to help each other make sure we're living there? Amen? All right.